0: Welcome to the Cast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs.
1: Greetings. My name is Atalia Omer, and I'm a professor of religion, conflict, and peace studies at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. I'm also co-director of the Contending Modernities Initiative based at the Kroc Institute. The initiative is focusing on generating new knowledge and a greater understanding of the ways in which religious and secular forces interact in the modern world. Along with myself, the Contending Modernities project is co-directed by Professors Ibrahim Musa and Scott Appleby. Great honor and privilege to be in conversation today with esteemed contributors to a forum engaging with Professor Shaul Magid's book titled Meir Kahana, The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical, which was published in 2021 by Princeton University Press. The forum is soon to be published in the Journal of Religious Ethics and is based on a panel conversation we all had. At the annual meeting of the American Academy of Religion in November 2021. Magid's book shows how race, religion, and nationalism have intertwined in shaping realities in Palestine, Israel. It also shows how racist ideas travel from one location to another. Magid talks about it in terms of racial grammar. The book also tells a story of Jewish modernity that carries with it utter powerlessness and being the target of genocidal violence and Jewish power and supremacist political project underwritten by Western imperial and cultural interest, which Palestinians have experienced as an ongoing Nakba, with Nakba or catastrophe referring to the event of depopulation of Palestinians in 1948. Before returning to saying a few more words, to contextualize our conversation today and on the pages of the Journal of Religious Ethics, let me just briefly introduce in no particular order and extremely briefly, only telegraphing their titles, the amazing interlocutors we have here today. Yanni Feller is Jeremy's Welling Assistant Professor of Jewish Studies and Assistant Professor of Religion at Wesleyan University. Next, we have Emily Filler, who is and assistant professor in the study of Judaism at Washington and Lee University. We are also joined by Susanna Heschel, who is the LEM Black Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College, where she chairs the Jewish Studies Program. And Robert Orsi, who is a Professor of Religious Studies, History, and American Studies at Northwestern University, where he holds the Grace Craddock-Nagel Chair in Catholic Studies. Last but not least, obviously, we are joined by Professor Shaul Magid, who is a Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College and a Senior Fellow of the Kogod Research Institute at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Before turning to Professor Magid to introduce us briefly to the book, I would like to share my own reaction to the story Magid's book tells. Magid tells the story of a man who is neither a prophet nor a visionary, but simply a manifestation of political Zionism's internal contradictions, working themselves out grotesquely and tragically. The book helps us understand the contemporary moment which Magid terms neo canism While Bono made in the U.S., as we will hear soon in more detail, in Israel, Kahana left a mark as a promoter of anti-miscegenation laws and a transfer platform, a euphemistic term for a program of depopulating Palestinians. In many respects, he said the quiet part out loud, because for Palestinians... Zionism, whether explicitly violent and racist, as in Kahana, or polite and liberal, meant an experience of the Nakba as ongoing, of transfer and a racialized regime, which premier Israeli and international human rights organizations from Bethselem to Amnesty International, have termed apartheid, using a category in international law to describe the entire geopolitical space from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea. In my own reflection on Shaul's book, I share my experience reading a short excerpt from Magid's book in a reading group that included a majority of Palestinian scholars and activists. They had very little patience for the exegesis of Kahana's thought and for identifying the nuances, twists, and turns in his career as an American and Israeli Jewish radical. Not only that, it is easier for these Palestinian interlocutors to deal with a grotesque but, in a sense, truthful expression of the violence inherent in the history and logic of Zionism and its embeddedness in the genocidal projects of European Christian modernity than it is to resist dismissals and erasures of Palestinian dignity and aspirations when framed through a liberal discourse about tolerance which often weaponizes anti-Semitism and litigates Palestinian lives and political aspirations. Kahana embodied an apocalyptic discourse of Jewish self-defense, which is also the framing of the Zionist discourse more broadly. I foreground my Palestinian conversation partners and their disinterest in Kahana exegesis in order to underscore the ethical positionality from which my appreciation of Magid's analysis of Kahana comes. Magid's analysis exposes the historicity of racism, internalized anti-Semitism, and neo-biblical eschatological militarism that has created Kahana. He is symptomatic of the most toxic potentialities of Zionism born in Christian Europe. So my own argument is that this discussion of Jewish political ethics cannot unfold in abstraction from Palestinian suffering and ongoing experience of the Nakba, Authorized through appeals to Jewish self defense, survival, rescue, as well as messianic redemptive visions. An argument for Jewish self defense and some sort of an ontological state of anti Semitism permeates the Zionist discourse of polite company as much as it preoccupies neo Khanist gangs in occupied East Jerusalem's neighborhoods of Silwan and Shekharach, for example. I cannot help but reflect on the horrendous image of a display of Jewish-Israeli brutality and power during the funeral of the slain journalist Shirin Abu Akleh in May 2022, just last week. She was assassinated by the forces of the Israeli occupation as a symptom of a broader assault on the truth and truth-telling. The footage of Israeli-Jewish brutality, which circulated broadly and even in some mainstream media, shows security officers, trying to topple Abu Akleh's coffin during her mass funeral, supposedly because of the ubiquitous display of Palestinian flags during a mass funeral procession in the streets of Jerusalem. The footage conveys that the Jewish power of the kind Kahana preached translates not only into the killing of people whose job is to document Palestinian lives under the occupation and tell the truth about them, but also desecrate their death, It may be such image as the brutality during Abu Akleh's funeral that substantiates Magid's argument that while on its surface Kahana, the racist, radical American rabbi, was a failure as a politician, neo-Kahanism has won in Israel. And is also very much resonating in so called mainstream liberal Zionism, which is not so enraged by Jewish Israeli displays of daily terrorizing of Palestinians, an ongoing project of racialized anti democratic supremacy, which has meant for over a century now increasing land and decreasing Palestinian people on that land. Through a very specific focus on Kahana's location in Jewish modernity and neo Kahanism's relation to secular forms of Zionism, our discussion of Professor Magid's important book also helps us think more robustly and broadly about religion and modernity. At least this is the hope. And with this, I want to turn to you, Shaul, and ask you to tell us about the main arguments of your book and as you see them, and why did you think it was necessary to write it?
2: Thank you, Atalia. And thank you all, not only for joining in this podcast, but also for writing those really wonderful and just fantastic reviews of the book that uh, people will get to read in the journal. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I will say that I think that the book, and perhaps I was just lucky in this case, the book is really actually much more relevant now than it was when I began writing it. With the rise of Israeli politicians like Itamar Ben-Gvir and certain kinds of other events that had happened in Israel, but also because of the reaction of a certain segments of American Jewry to Trump's election and the reaction to the rise in anti-semitic acts in America. And this is not only uh, within the Orthodox community that has ex- that has experienced a real rightward shift, but even in some of the more recent, things said by the uh, president of the ADL, Jonathan Greenblatt, on the relationship between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. It, just in general, it seems like Kahana has really bubbled up to the surface in some way in ways that I really had no idea when I started writing the book in 2015 or 2014. So one of the reasons why I, I, I wrote the book, I mean, there are certain very specific reasons, but one of the the broader reasons that I wrote the book, it seemed to me that a figure like Mayor Kahana was on the one hand Or I couldn't really decide whether he was the man behind the curtain or the crazy uncle in the closet or in the attic. That is, he was clearly being ignored by American Jewish historians and observers of the American Jewish scene, either because he was an embarrassment or because he actually served as a mirror for a kind of dark side of American Jewry that American Jews were not Willing to acknowledge, and that's the frame of the anecdote at the beginning of the book. When this modern Orthodox man that I that I happened to come across at my niece's bat mitzvah basically said to me in very very openly that yes, everything Kahana said was right, and everything he predicted came true. This was not said by an ideologue. This was not said by a top politician. This was just said by a regular kind of attendee at the synagogue. So in that sense, Kahana was interesting to me precisely because he was considered to be unimportant. In two recent reviews of the book, one in First Things and the other one recently in the Wall Street Journal, both of the reviewers actually criticized the book. And in criticizing the book, they made the point precisely why I wrote the book. That is, in different ways, each of them said, The thing that the author got wrong about the book is that Kahana was somehow influential and that Kahana was somehow important. One of the reviewers said, oh, because the militant tactics of Kahana are no longer acceptable in Israel, therefore Kahana no longer really exists. I mean, that's just empirically false. But the Wall Street Journal reviewer said, because American Jews have not produced another Kahana, therefore we see that Kahana was really just a footnote and not something more than that. And I think what both of them missed was something that I did try to argue in the book, and I did so explicitly a number of times, that you have to really separate Kahana's tactics from his worldview. And it may be true that his tactics are no longer relevant, although in Israel, I think they're becoming more relevant. But it may be true in America that we don't have the equivalent of the JDL. We don't have you know, a vigilante Jewish group that's going and you know beating up African-Americans who are harassing elderly Jews. But the militancy of Kahana was really simply the product of his time. And that the worldview of Kahana is something that I think was planted much more deeply in the American Jewish consciences. And I will say that if you look at Ghana's worldview as opposed to his tactics, What he was saying was not really so radical. What he was saying was actually quite common in certain circles of American Jewry, that anti-Semitism is ubiquitous and it's unresolvable, that liberalism is really the problem and liberalism is that which is going to destroy American Jews. Remember, the liberalism of American Jewry in the 1960s is a little bit different than the liberalism of American Jewry today. But the the very idea that Kahana basically said that that America will not protect its Jews is something that was actually quite common then, and it's becoming even more common now, especially with the rise of anti-Semitism, where there are increasing numbers of American Jews who basically say, we can't trust America to protect us, that liberalism is not the answer. And for Kahana, ultimately it was it was Israel. I wanna make a couple of comments if I could, and then I'll, then I'll stop on the responses to the book, because the responses are actually quite interesting. I got responses to the book from four different groups, of Jews. The first were Kahana sympathizers, and they basically thought that you know it was a hatchet job on their leader, and it was unfair, and there were all these historical inaccuracies. Not one of them actually showed me one historical inaccuracy, but all of them said there were many historical inaccuracies, but I don't have the time to really list them. When in fact, my response to them is, I actually took Kahana pretty seriously. I mean, there have been you know, books like Robert Friedman's The False Prophet and Yair Cutler's Hayokahana Kahana that were really actually kind of hatchet jobs on this person. But I took him very seriously and I was, I was surprised that they were so kind of negative in that way. Although there is one responder from a settler that I think is very interesting. The second group were modern Orthodox Jews who were also very angry. And they were angry in large part because they felt like I was tying him to them that he was a product of modern orthodoxy and that his worldview was really an outgrowth of modern orthodoxy. The next group were liberal Jews and liberal Jews, some of them were actually quite angry that I took him seriously at all, right? Because Kahana should be just the crazy uncle in the closet. Let's just leave him there and lock the door and make believe that he never existed. Plus, in a sense, they really understood that what I was doing with Kahana was offering my own critique of liberalism through Kahana's critique of liberalism. And I said to, I said, I think in one podcast or something that I decided not to write, write in the book that Mayor Kahana is my Karl Schmitt in some way, right? The way in which the left uses Carl Schmitt for their own critique. And then there were the neoconservative Jews. And I think that the, the author of the review of the Wall Street Journal was one of those, although I don't know who that person is, who basically made the argument. He is a very, very interesting argument. He said, Kahana was prescient but not influential. In other words, he was right in his diagnosis, but yet he was not influential. And he just kind of sat within that kind of seeming contradiction between that idea of Kahana being right or seeing the future, so to speak, and yet his influence was really not there. So I think I kind of pressed buttons on all of those groups of people. As well as the American Jewish historians, who for the for the, for the most part were unwilling to actually put him into the story, because again they would rather him be the crazy uncle in the in in the attic or the closet rather than the man behind the curtain. I think he was really the man behind the curtain, and I think we're seeing that more and more. And I really hope that, in a certain sense, that's what people will get from the book. So I'll just stop here. Thank you, Shaul. I wonder if you can just briefly explain the reference to Karl Schmidt in case people the audience, the listeners. So, so Carl Schmidt was a very, very influential legal theoretician in Germany who ended up becoming the basically the legal mind of Nazism. He actually was somebody who was well-respected by Jews before the Nazi era as a, might, might call a reactionary critique of Weimar liberalism. But what's interesting about Carl Schmitt in terms of its reception is that of late, he's very often used by radical leftists as a way of constructing their own critique of liberalism. And that's kind of an example where you see the reactionary critique of liberalism and the radical left of liberalism actually coincide in, in a certain way. And I think that of served that purpose for me to some degree. Thank you for this clarification. Let me now turn to uh, Professor Orsi
1: and invite you to speak about to what degree you understand the story, if at all, <laughs> the story of Kahana as an American story, and in particular, why is it story of American religion? So just kind of the effort is also to take the conversation about Kahana outside of the internal Jewish contestation and think about it. Well, what does it tell us about, you know, religion? as religious studies scholars as well?
3: Thank you, Atalia. That's an important question. And uh, first, I want to say to Shaul that any book that makes that many different stakeholders, religious stakeholders, unhappy, that's surely a sign of a very successful book. Uh, And uh, I really want to compliment you on that, because I think that certainly it surely should be one of our responsibilities as, as scholars of religion to trouble the complacent, to trouble religious complacency. So I'll tell you, in response to your question, I think, first of all, Kahana's story, and I really admire this book again, Kahana's story is a New York story. When the JDL was founded in 68, it's hard to exaggerate the level of sort of racial hysteria in New York City in that period, uh, abetted by the, the media, which just reveled in uh, lurid accounts of black on white crime while not covering, for example, the criminalization. I mean, the broader context, of course, is the criminalization of African-American skin, black skin in the Great Migration. So, you know, 68 was really a dire time. There's an analogy in the Italian community. There was an organization called SPONGE, which is a racist acronym that translates in part to the society for the prevention of african americans getting everything so there really was a on the edges of new york neighborhoods on public transportation on uh, in schools and public schools a truly a bitter encounter between ethnic and racial groups and religious groups in New York City in this period. Uh, Shaul references at one point Norman Pottharis' 1963 article, My Negro Problem. Now, and it's a startling, it's a startling essay that, uh, you know, Pottharis talks about hating, fearing, envying uh, African-American, his African-American neighbors. It, it's a time capsule of this moment of what I'm calling racial hysteria. Again, against a broader background of U.S. racism, uh, anti-Blackness. As for a religious story, this was also the period of the radicalization of theologies across the religious traditions. And Shaul references this regularly. I think here of Black Power theology, for example, which is concurrent with this, or Catholic radicalism, which has its rise now, which uh, comes into the public sphere more, public, more visibly with the Berrigans in 68, the same year, the Catonsville Nine action in, uh, against the draft board, draft board in, in Maryland. So you do see, you, you know, you see a radicalization of, of the religious imaginations in in the U.S. I think among religious intellectuals There's a real radicalization. So that's all part of it. Ultimately, though, I think I disagree a little with with uh, Shaul. I don't know how far the comparison. There's a consistent comparison in the book between uh, Kahana and Malcolm X, I do think that can only be taken so far. I mean, I think ultimately Malcolm X's story is very, very different. You know, he eventually manages to go to Mecca, has its much more expansive vision, racial, ethnic, religious understanding of his religion. And I I think to some extent, he's at least before his assassination, he's he's beginning to step outside, trying to step outside the racial hysteria. Uh, Kahana, Thrived within the racial hysteria. He was a he was a master of the racial hysteria. So, and I think that's an important distinction.
1: Thank you. I wonder, Shaul, uh, do you want to maybe respond to that point about uh, Malcolm X?
2: I agree with you. I do think it only goes so far. Malcolm X certainly had some kind of awakening that Kahana never had. You know, it would be interesting hypothetically to think what would have become of Kahana had he not immigrated to Israel I don't think he would have had an awakening moment I don't know exactly what would what would have happened but I also think that Malcolm X was a much more compelling figure for a variety of reasons intellectually and also the way he kind of understood that situation I think you know the comparison about radicalism about anti-integrationism about the idea of the kind of isolation of a, of a racial minority, or in the case of the Jewish, in the Jewish case, an ethnic minority. So those those kinds of things I think he shared. And I think that Kahana did have a kind of deep respect for Malcolm X in some certain, certain kind of way. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you.
1: So Professor Heschel, let me turn to you. I wonder, as someone who has thought so much about anti-Semitism and also uh, questions of feminism and and gender. First, what is your take on Sha'ul's concept of Judeo-pessimism, which he articulates in the book in his analysis of Kahana? And relatedly, I think, uh, why is it important to bring a gender lens to the analysis of Kahana and Kahanism?
4: Thank you. I'm so glad to be joining you. This is a very important book that Sha'ul Magid has written about Meir Kahana. And I see it also as an important call to historians because we're going to have to change the way we have told the narrative of American Jewish history and of modern Jewish thought and of the history of Zionism and the state of Israel and much more besides. And I appreciate also what our colleague Robert Orsi has just said about uh, and American history. And I think there too, there's an important chapter to be written in the future about what Mayor Kahana tells us about religion in America. So I think for many people, Donald Trump came as a shock and shouldn't have been a shock. Why did he come as a shock? Because we hadn't been paying attention. And the same is true as Professor Mike says about Mayor Kahana. We weren't paying attention. The issue is both Kahana and the reception of Kahana, which, as he points out very clearly, has grown. American Jews certainly and Israelis certainly have become increasingly sympathetic to Kahana Whether or not they understand what they're saying or understand that Kahanism is linked to Mayor Kahana, nonetheless, it's there. And the fact that the United States government is just a few days ago, as you said, Professor Omar, decided that Kahanism is no longer to be on the list of terrorist organizations, that's also quite frightening. But it also should tell us perhaps something about the pathology of Kahana and Kahanism. You've asked me several different questions. I would say I certainly agree with what Shaul Magid says about Afro-pessimism and Judeo-pessimism. And on the one hand, Afro-pessimism is a response to the understanding that white people view black people as non-life. And so it's possible for Derek Chauvin to murder George Floyd on the street without thinking that he's committing murder in that moment. He didn't even think that because black skin is non-life. And this we see then analyzed by black philosophers such as Frank Wilderson, and uh, in South Africa, Sid Hole, blackness is non-life. Now, one can understand in the years following the Shoah that Jews would also say in the eyes of the Gentile world, Kana says, Jews are non-life. The problem comes, though, in what is done with Afro pessimism and what is done with Judeo pessimism. Afro pessimists don't call for a genocide of white people or argue that a whiteness is somehow polluting, et cetera, and turn it into a political movement, whereas Kahana did. So there we find that what Kahana's done is to develop an ideology that justifies Jewish power, but it's a power put to the purpose of hate. And in that sense, What he's also been, and it's of course a hatred of Gentiles, but what he's also done is to develop a politics of emotion. The kind of um, use of emotion that Kahana has been so effective in creating in a legacy that's gone on now for many decades and that I fear will continue is this kind of passion that unfortunately is reminiscent of antisemitism, including at its very peak in national socialism. That is to say, as Kahana does, that Gentiles cause a pollution of the Jewish body, that they bring leprosy. It echoes what Nazi said, including Nazi theologians who said Jews bring syphilis to the German people. They must be removed. Now the irony here is that Kahana is inverting antisemitism for his own purposes and perhaps that's part of the power. That is, Jews after the Shoah were rightly concerned and shocked about what had just happened, six million Jews murdered, and felt that they needed a place of safety and security in establishing a state of Israel. One question we might ask, and and I think this is the implication on almost every page of uh, Shaul Magid's book, is whether there can be a Zionism without Kahanism. Is it inevitable that it goes in this direction? And that brings us to the larger question, the question of liberalism, why is it fascism emerges out of democracy and what can be done about it. So these are broad political questions that make this book important for everyone who is thinking about the condition we find ourselves in today with a worldwide explosion of what we thought would never happen. The rise of authoritarian regimes, of fascist regimes that are racist and that are anti-Semitic, and that are misogynist. And in fact, as you you asked a moment ago, of course there is a gender politics here, and that's clear. And it's a gender politics that is occurring both explicitly with Kahana's um, notions about the about pollution and sexuality. He's obsessed with that, which is of course typical of fascist regimes, and we see that developing right now in the efforts of uh, the United States um, Republicans to outlaw abortion, even in the case of a rape, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, this kind of misogyny that stands at the heart of Kahana's legacy to us is something that should be of concern to all of us. But again, does it originate with Kahana? Does it come to Kahana from the United States, from some kind of atmosphere? Does it come out of the sources of Judaism? And again, where do we put um, the spoke in the wheel, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about the Nazis? Where do we put that spoke? How do we stop this wheel from taking off? And I think that is, in a sense, the important moral challenge that Shaul Magid is giving to us right now. What can we do to stop Gahanism from engulfing us? And I would say that this is the danger to Jews, it's a danger for Palestinians, but it's a danger for all who adhere to liberalism, to democratic principles, to feminist principles, to gender equality, to respect for sexual identity, and for a desire to live in peace with one another in all of our differences. So this is the great challenge. It's a moral challenge and a political challenge. It's informed by religion, informed by, of course, concern regarding the growing misogyny, And I think uh, what he has done in this book is to make us stop for a moment and say, our history books have been going in the wrong direction. Our religious thought has gone in the wrong direction. We must pause and figure out what went wrong in Jewish life in particular, and see how we can quickly and immediately change course and get away from this terrible situation we're finding ourselves in
1: politically and morally. Thanks. Thank you, Professor Heschel, for this powerful intervention, and I would love to hear from everyone your reaction to the many points that are already on the table at this at the moment. Let me start. To maybe turn to you, Professor Filler, and since in your piece for the uh, Journal of the Religious Ethics, you wrote about liberalism and uh, the quest- questions of civility. And I was thinking, I was reflecting at uh, Professor Heschel's point about the relationship between f- liberalism and fascism as it pertains to, well, the story of Kahana, but a broader story. So l- perhaps l- let's hear from you your, your reflection on that notion of civility and liberalism and how you connect it to uh, Professor Magid's book.
0: So I should say that, in a very foundational way, I understand this book to be almost entirely about liberalism. So, um, or a, a kind of uncovering of an occluded liberal sensibility. And so you say, I'm happy to make a kind of big claim on Shola's behalf. Um, and shall you can tell me if, you, if you, this is not how you understand your book. But I actually understand the book um, in very great de- degree to be an attempt by shaul to uncover a kind of jewish and particular israel politics that inheres nearly as much in liberal jewish communities as in less liberal jewish communities and so one reason I thought that Shoals' um, kind of consistent references to a kind of psychoanalytic were interesting. Um, Kahana is the id of American Jewry or something bubbles up just at the very beginning. Uh, Scholl said, you know, I feel as though some things, that some phenomena that I wrote about are coming very close to the surface. One of the reasons I thought the, the psychoanalytic was important was because something that the psychoanalytic does is of course reveal something which is much more generalized than we might expect. So there are overt Expressions of some politics or some philosophy, and we can kind of very clearly identify those. But something that the psychoanalytic does is, of course, unearth. That is, it, it sort of sits behind the person and unearths something. And in that case, it reveals something that's much more kind of generalized to a particular population or a particular community than we would expect. So, in large part, I actually understand this the book to be um, a a kind of subtle psychoanalytic extraction of a much more general tendency in American Jewish politics, and that that tendency is, in some important ways, quite illiberal. I wanna be clear for better or for worse that liberalism is of course not synonymous with good. It's a set of ideological commitments. So for better or for worse, um, it it sort of draws out some important illiberal tendencies that are more easily recognizable in some communities than others. So I wanna remark on really a kind of unsung hero um, of Shaul's book, without which I think a number of us would would have we would have written our responses or, or considered our responses in different ways. The unsung hero of Shaul's book, of course, is this like interlocutor at the bar mitzvah at the bat mitzvah who is, says something to him in in line. this becomes a kind of great kind of this is like a world historical event in the the world of Shal Magid's book, this interlocutor who says to him in line at the buffet, both that everything he he thinks everything that, Kahana said or that he predicted turned out to be right and then he adds and this is important he should have said it in a nicer way so if we think of these as two clauses clause one is Kahana was right and clause two was he should have said things in a nicer way uh, we can debate what the nicer way is in between those two clauses I actually see a meaningful opening to questions of liberalism that is to say to what degree is liberalism as it's constructed in American Jewish communities largely a function of affect? or of tactics, or of communal norms, as opposed to a kind of meaningfully liberal ideology. And so part of what I, I guess I want to push that, and I'm happy to, to sort of play this role in this discussion. Part of what I wanted to sort of push at is that in the context of Shaw's book, it's it's maybe notable, this is like a modern Orthodox Jew and a man, I think that's important, at this bot Mitzvah, but also in another sense, he speaks much more broadly for the American Jewish scene, including much more liberal communities than he imagines. That, I think, is a a kind of stake that I want to stand by or hold, or at least as a kind of pole against which we can imagine how broadly some ideology that could reasonably be called Kahanism is expressed, that that is much more generally distributed across a modern Jewish population than we imagine, and that occasionally we see instantiations of that in a more overt way. And often we need better lenses um, or better tools for identifying in ways that are less overt. And so ultimately, I think think that's how I think this book works. It's a kind of a tool um, or a lens or some other metaphor that allows us to see something about American Jewish politics both domestic politics and, of course, Israeli geopolitics than we thought. It's a kind of a window or something that that tells us something more about Jews generally.
1: Thank you, Dr. Filler, and hopefully we'll return to some of the questions that you just raised. But moving, shifting briefly from this very American focus that you articulated to the context of Israel-Palestine, I want to turn now to... um, Professor Feller, and ask you how does Kahana's life and thought connect to the present moment in Israeli politics, and also perhaps uh, invite you to um, unpack a little bit why do you write in your piece, in your contribution to the forum on Magid's book, that his work is you see it as an intervention in the historiography of the Jewish political tradition, which also connects to
5: a point that uh, Professor Heschel made earlier. So. Thank you. And uh, a lot of the discussion is really connected to the things we already heard. So I, I think there are actually a lot of overlaps, even though I will focus on the Israeli context. So maybe to start with Emily's great point about kind of the psychoanalytic mode or kind of thinking about Kahana as the id, and the fact that he should have said it in a nicer way. I guess I haven't lived in Israel in 10 years, but I guess that's the part that was most striking to me, both kind of in intellectually invigorating in Shaul's book, but also so interesting is this idea of for me, Kahana is not the id, or he's not even the man behind the curtain. He's in prime time television, right? So Itamar Ben Gvir, who is a member of the parliament for the religious Zionist Party, he's now actually kind of being played kind of in a very satirical caricature way in Eretz Neederet, which is a prime time television watch in Israel. So people get to see admittedly a parody, but still it also normalizes, right? Parodies also has this tendency to normalize. So in this sense, he's the crazy uncle in the ethic now runs the government, basically, right? So, or doesn't run the government, he's in the opposition, but he does have, the the ideology as uh, Shaul rightly notes, is way bigger than uh, just the actual members. But just to give you Couple of brief instances, and unfortunately, so many are coming every single day. So Itamar Bengvir has said is the most obvious political manifestation. But there are also, I think, showed that something you mentioned in your reply in the journal, which I thought was a very helpful way of framing it. There are actually two Kahanist projects. There's the political project, which can be symbolized by Itamar Benkvir, but there's also, I wouldn't even call it the ideological, but the social project. It's a project about restructuring. Israeli society or Jewish society more broadly. And in Israel, you see that through the organization of Lehava, which is an organization dedicated for the prevention of assimilation in the Holy Land. That's kind of the title. And it, it's ho- as horrific as it sounds. And Susanna, you mentioned kind of misogyny and gender politics. So they are kind of trying to save Jewish girls from you know being seduced by Arab male. So that's a very explicit Uh, also gender politics, and racial politics. There are everyday attacks and threats on left activists, on people who work in human rights organizations. And I think that's something that that I took from Shaul's book about the centrality of Kahana. It's a double-pronged attack. It's an attack on, of course, the Arabs and the Arab Israelis and Palestinians, but it's also part of the rhetoric and violence of Kahanism is attack on other Jews. So it's the attack on anyone who disagrees with the Khanist ideology. So we saw it as kind of an anti-establishment against institutions in the United States in Shaul's book, and we see it nowadays in really, at times, street violence in Israel. So yes, Kahana is unfortunately very much present still in Israel, and I would say like I don't see it decline. It's enough to walk on the streets and you see graffitis such as Kahana Tzadak, Kahana was which translates as Kahana was right, or Kahana High, which was the name of the political party founded after after his death, which means Kahana lives. So that's kind of the troubling aspect that I learned a lot about the American context from Sha'ul's book, but I also found it really striking how just how present Kahana still is in Israel. Today, and this idea of the isn't of this messianism, apocalyptic messianism, combined with the khanist violence, is really becoming very, very prevalent. And I think that's one of Shaul's great contributions: is this concept of the neo-khanism. Now, in this sense, it is an intervention in the Jewish in Jewish political thought. So, Susanna said that our history books and religious thought went in the wrong direction, and Aussie, Bob Orsi talked about troubling the complacent right? So I think part of this troubling, the complacent, is also in terms of the Jewish political thought or the Jewish political tradition. So for that, I might uh, just say that I think very broadly, insufficient primer, there are two basic questions that Jewish political thought asks today. One is about Israel and the diaspora, and the other is, as Emily and others have mentioned, about Judaism and liberalism and their compatibility or incompatibility. Now, whether it is an affirmation of one position or the other, this, these are the basic questions. So I'm thinking on the one hand on work such as David Bill's powerlessness in Judaism, and Jerome Hazoni's work, very two different political projects, or Michael Walzer and David Novak, again, seemingly very different positions. But the very basic question about Judaism and liberalism, and, its con- and their ability to work together. And I think Shaul's book radically changes the picture. Just as uh, Kahana isn't mentioned in Jonathan Sarna's American Judaism, as Shaul notes, he's not really mentioned as part of the Jewish political tradition at all. Uh, There's no volume in this, the Jewish political tradition, four volumes about racial grammar, for example. And in the three volumes I looked at out of the four, Kahana is not mentioned a single time. As well, so that really shows us that Shaul's intervention is so important, also in how we think about about what it means to have a Jewish political tradition, and how can we teach this Jewish political tradition in a different way.
1: Thank you, Yaniv. So let's see if there are any reactions, responses, or further reflections on any of the threads that are right now in front of us. Um, Yeah, Professor Orsi and then uh, Professor Yeah,
3: Yaniv, what you just said, I think, is true more generally of religious traditions. I mean, the same can be said for uh, thinking only in the US context now, US Catholicism, or Catholicism, Catholicism more generally, for example. When the the sex abuse crisis broke in Catholicism, there was this, So how could this have happened? But, you know, it's because there there had been an inattention or complacency all along to not see what there was within the tradition that could lead to this. And the same with evangelical, white evangelical support for Trump. I mean, there should have been no surprise about white evangelical support for Trump. And the fact, I think this is something that Susanna was saying earlier, the fact that there was surprise speaks to the failure of a certain kind of scholarship. And I think that's what's really fabulous about this book, is that it really calls attention to that failure, implicitly mostly, but it calls attention to that failure and across the religious traditions. Thank you. Susanna?
4: Thank you. I so much appreciate what everybody has said, and I, I love this discussion. I just want to say that, well, yes, of course, we should be shocked that Kahana is not included in, in the history of Jewish political thought in American Jewry and all of the various studies that have been done. At the same time, let's remember, women are also not talked about. There's nothing about Jewish feminism in the, in the Walser series of Jewish political thought volumes for example, and one could go on with that. And I also have to say that Jewish history generally doesn't like to put in anything that sounds a little negative about the Jews, like all the racism in the the Kabbalistic and Hasidic texts. They're beautiful texts, but they are also racist. And we don't wanna talk about that. So why, why don't we wanna talk about it? And who's gonna prod us to talk about it? And I think part of the Zionist project is to get away from being prodded and get away from an audience that demands to hear about these things. So in some sense, this is also about a Zionist mentality that affects Jews in the United States and Europe, et cetera, that doesn't want to look at the negatives. And that has been very destructive to us politically and not being willing to acknowledge some of the horrors that have also been committed by Jews in the Zionist project. But then I also just want to say that Kahanism can't be used as a kind of covering law to explain all kinds of developments in the contemporary or in the past. That is, antisemitism is often invoked by historians to explain a variety of incidents, violence or rhetorical. It's because of antisemitism Jews were attacked. Well, that doesn't really explain everything. And same thing, khanism is important for us to recognize, sure, but we aren't veering in certain directions politically, even as so-called self-proclaimed liberals because of Kahanism. So I would just caution against using Kahanism as a kind of overarching explanation. I would just also want to respond, I really like what everybody said. And Emily, I really liked when you called attention to thinking about the, the psychoanalytic here and Gahana, which is wonderful. You know, there's also the question of the fetish and what Gahana does is to fetishize the Gentile. And what is a fetishization? And Freud somewhere says something about the the Chinese mutilate the woman's foot and then they revere it. And there's something very weird about Kahane's fetishization of the Gentile when he is simultaneously so concerned about antisemitism. It's weird, but of course, in psychoanalytic terms, is perfectly reasonable. It makes perfect sense to do that. And of course, he has inverted much in terms of antisemitism, but he's also, on the one hand, he rejects the Gentile world. On the other hand, he is Christianizing Judaism and Christianizing Zionism in very weird, strange ways, but ways that M.L.E., as you've pointed out, make perfect sense if you think about it psychoanalytically. So, you know, he is also a kind of Rorschach blot for us to interpret, and we, we do see ourselves in a different light when we look at Kahana, and that's one of the great, important contributions of Showell's book.
2: I just want to just add to that, and of course, he, he also has an Italian-American non-Jewish mistress. Which is like, it's perfect Freud. I mean, Freud couldn't have written that better. Who not only then commits suicide once he breaks up with her, but in lieu of her death, he establishes a foundation in her name to raise money. In other words, it's not even somebody that's willing to kind of want to hide it. He actually establishes a foundation in her name. So again, I mean, that Freudian uh, notion is so deeply embedded, both in terms of his, as you say, the fetishization of the Gentile, and then the kind of sexuality, you know, with the Gentile, without ever thinking anything of it, right? There's no sense of embarrassment, at least in anything that he said about that. So, yeah, so I just wanted to add that. Thank you, Shaul. And I know, uh, Bob, you wanted to
1: jump into, and Emily after (laughs) that.
3: Well, very quickly then. First, on this subject of fetishization, I wanted to say something else, but let me just note it. Put me, it made me think of the strange place of Jews in the conservative evangelical imagination, which is both, on the one hand, anti. There's this odd. You I mean there's this odd, as you know, philo-Semitism, the sort of love of the Jew among con- uh, right wing evangelicals, at the same time that coexists with virulent anti semitism. But I wanted to say, we were talking about what we have not paid attention to. I do wanna add to this that there's, that we should at least acknowledge the ways in which scholarship now is policed by funding and decisions made on the university level. I mean, the fact that so many of us have chairs in particular religious traditions funded by people who very often their intention for us, even though we struggle against this, I think, their intention is to present a positive view of these religious traditions. And I think it would be very hard if some, I mean, I don't know, Shaul, what you think about this, but I think it would be hard for a Jewish graduate student on the market who said, well, you know, my project is on Kahana and Kahana's role, I think of Kahana as, you know, your project, essentially. That person would probably not get a job. What I'm calling the policing of the university. I mean, that is, that's, this really happens.
2: Although I did get an email from somebody from Turin in Italy that's writing a dissertation on Kahana, and she wanted to actually talk to me, and another woman who's writing an MA thesis on Kahana in Sweden. So obviously, it's maybe outside of the US. No, but I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if I was uh, you know advising an assistant professor, let's say not even a graduate student, but an assistant professor, and this was going to be his his or her tenure book, I think uh, all of us would kind of raise. Issues whether that would be the best choice or not. So that is certainly that is certainly the case. Yeah.
0: But
4: these days almost anything can get you in trouble.
0: This is a sort of important question about sort of what gets you in trouble or what is the point of this book in terms of trouble. I mean, we could debate whether or not Shallow could have written this book as an assistant professor. But I do think that obviously we're in some sense still kind of dancing around the question of whether or to what degree to take Kahana seriously. Tahana makes a real actual set of political claims. Um, in fact, he makes a real actual set of political claims that um, I argue are actually shared much more broadly by many, if not most American Jews, than even they, the many or most American Jews, believe themselves to be in accord. So I wonder if the problem the problem with Shoal's book in terms of you know Shoal, the assistant professor, is not the writing about Violence per se, it's about the kind of posture of engaging seriously with Kahana's politics. But the political claim that Kahana makes, um, and that I think Shoal takes very seriously, is a kind of structural claim about the meaning of political Zionism. And that claim is not easily dismissed, Kahana or no Kahana, but it's terrifying to hear what I think is ultimately a much more broadly held claim when it's in the mouth of Mayor kahana, who we all know is like capital B bat. So I do think there's something important about the degree to which people are able to perform a taking Kahana seriously, even if, of course, taking him seriously in order to deconstruct the ideology or to point to the facts in which the ideology is actually quite constructed communally. So I I suppose if we were to put this into very contemporary parlance, we would say that Sho'ol is platforming. Kahana, right? He's giving a platform to a voice. But part of what I think is going on, and here I'm kind again, I'm kind of happy to play this role in the conversation. I, what I think is going on is that Shaol is suggesting actually that this, in a broad sense, a, an ideology that is more Kahana than not, um, has very wide purchase in in liberal American Judaism. And of course, Andy even Natalia can. speak more to the Israeli context. So we we can debate where it is that the funders would pull their funding, but the the kind of posture of taking Kahana seriously um, and using Kahana as a kind of diagnostician, um, I actually think is the, the kind of major intervention of the book.
1: Yeah, I just want to add to this that again to return to, in a sense, my earlier point about how important it is for this conversation to be relational and be confronted by the experiences of, of specifically Palestinians, because I worry so much about the conversation becoming intra Jewish, kind of contestations, imagining, reimagining, and not focus on the violence and also the ethical demands, kind of the ethical, you know, political construct that can emerge from a relational conversation. Which, and here I really also connect very deeply with points made by Bob and Susanna about.
2: Grabbing with violence contextually within the traditions, historically, and so forth. I think, in some way, what Emily said about Kahana and taking Kahana seriously and the reception, one could also say about Susanna's Aryan Jesus book and the things that that raised within that community in Germany and the way, oh, like many Jews loved it, right? Because, in a certain sense, it affirmed something about that they always thought about the anti Semitism within the church. In Germany. And of course, the German audience had a very different reaction. So could you speak to that just for a moment? Or I know you have to go.
4: Yeah, sure. So German theologians have been very resistant to discussing the involvement of the church, Protestant church, Catholic church, in Nazi ideology, Nazi crimes. Uh, they don't want to hear about it, just like Jews don't want to hear about Kahana, or they bracket it to say it was, well, it was just a moment. Or they were really just defending. These theologians were defending the church against the Nazis, just like we say. Kahana is defending Israel against anti-Semites. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it can be, Kahana trot- can be trotted out today with the whole issue that you you mentioned earlier, Shaul, about Jonathan Greenblatt equating criticism of Zionism with, with anti-Semitism, okay. this is really becoming an explosive issue. And yes, Atalia is right, and Yani pointing to the violence that is, what shall I say, it's like a volcano that's starting to erupt and is only going to get worse. I don't see how we can tamp that down and prevent the violence from getting mm-hmm. worse. I understand Israel is now doing some kind of military exercises as a kind of what how do you say this in military language a preparation or a military games they call
0: it i hate that term for an attack on iran but one thing I think is important, and just to step in for a minute, if I can sort of enhance the contradictions a little, is that hearing from the Palestinian readers whom Atalia talked with suggested that to whatever degree we talk about this or that kind of violence ramping up right now, to some degree, like any number of Palestinians could identify the locus of the violence in the late 1940s, that there's something that at least that's the challenge that is presented by reading Kahana in this particular Israeli context. It's not just about, or even substantially about, watching a kind of descent into Kahanism, but at least many of Italia's Palestinian interlocutors understood that to be actually quite foundational to the political Zionist project. So at the very least, I think that we should kind of look at that square on or, or look at that head
1: on. Thank you, Emily. This is exactly the reaction that um, reading Shaul's thesis about Kahana generated for the Palestinian readers. So, well, you know, it's just a matter of degree of, you know, being more, more polite about it, less polite about it.
5: Thank you Which for being for patient, time. waiting for a long time. I just enjoy listening. It is about taking Kahana seriously, right? I guess that relates precisely to the point. The Palestinians, Atalia, that you read Kahana with, they take him seriously because they see something in it. And then there's the different way of taking him seriously, not just ideologically, but really as a Jewish thinker, which is, I think, what you do in the last chapter, I believe, when you read the Jewish idea as kind of a text of Jewish philosophy. And that really forces us to move away from the, oh, he's just a rebel rouser or he's just, you know, a provocateur, but he's an actual Jewish thinker. I actually tried, I'm not sure if it fits the category of getting into trouble or not, and the assistant professor, I actually tried following our uh, discussion in November and following reading Shaul's book to teach Kahana. So I taught a class called Political Fantasies of Zion this semester. So we read all sorts of fantasies from, you know, we read Rashid Khalidi, but we also read uh, Satmer, and we read Kahana, and we read Herzl, we read all sorts of texts, and it was so interesting because the students were mostly American Jews, I would say, mostly liberal would be my assumption, small liberal arts college. But today, I think they took two things from it. A, it didn't really surprise them, which is interesting and kind of just relates to the point of just how deeply embedded Kahana is. They were resistant to it. We read two chapters of Never Again but they also, at least two of them in the responses, so they need to submit written responses, right? At least two of them, I guess, if we want to read it psychoanalytically, they move to the first person plural. So they started talking about we, which they have never done in other responses, which speaks again to just how embedded Kahana is, but also I think to just how effective Kahanist rhetoric is in the sense of he really forces people to engage and maybe I wonder if that's why scholarship today doesn't want to engage Kahana, right? Because it's once you start actually engaging, then you really have to go and make a serious engagement, which people are reluctant of doing.
2: I had a, a leader of a, one of the main social justice movements in the U.S. write me, and she said, you know, I'm reading your book on Kahana, and I'm actually really afraid, I'm more sympathetic to him than I actually thought as we go on. And what she was getting was his critique of liberalism. I mean, that's really in a sense what the the sympathy was. I think you're right, I I mean, I've taught him, as Yaniv knows in in the forthcoming Feshwa for David Novak, I have an article which compares Kahana, Yoel Teitelbaum of Satmer and David Novak on Judaism and Zionism, and really kind of put the three of them in kind of conversation with each other in ways that I think are actually quite interesting and productive. Thank you. I think
1: that one of the challenges, it is a challenge within kind of the scholarly discourse, is to say, well, from what positionality are we going to take Kahana seriously? What are the normative assumptions? And we need to own them, because that will really make a difference in terms of the kind of analysis and you know, knowledge that will be generated or the histories and the political ethics and and, uh, historiography of uh, Jewish thought that uh, will be generated. So it's one thing to take him seriously and say, oh, right on, I agree with you. So there there are certain assumptions. There is a place to ask questions about what are the normative commitments of the scholarly uh, work. And in this particular case, the study of the Jewish tradition in the U.S., in Israel, and so forth. So it is like to go back to Emily's point, the issue about liberalism is very much um, at the center of this conversation. So I want to invite whoever wants to jump in uh, to see if there are any kind of final words to contribute to the discussion on the um, base on what does Shaul's book and analysis of Kahana? How does it help us think about religion, modernity, base, liberalism? all those uh, concepts that have been kind of circulating throughout our conversation today, so.
2: I think one of the things that was so refreshing about the about the conversation we had in November and about the responses, is that I think that all of you, including obviously Susanna, in a certain sense really got what I was trying to do, which was really not write a biography of, a, of an individual, but use that person as a lens to look at some of these larger issues. And most of the responses that I got, reviews or, or you know, did I get him right? Did I not get him right? Was he this? Was he that? Was he a racist? Was he not? And it, it kind of almost like really misses the point. The point was precisely as an intervention into post-war American and Israeli Jewry and the role that he played and the, and the ways in which he raises certain kinds of issues about religion, about liberalism, that it's just like all of you just hone into that, which is exactly what I wanted the book to be, and not kind of get into battles about this or that in terms of... That's why I don't know if I really consider it a biography per se, right? Because I use the person as a lens, sometimes as a weapon, but certainly as a lens to look at a variety. Of, and most of the people who responded either in writing or not didn't want to do that for whatever reason, or just, you know, got hung up on on... The particularities of the person's life. So I really want to just thank you all for, for doing that and to bringing that to the surface. Thank you, Shaul. I mean, one of, for me as a Jewish Israeli, one of the most
1: shocking dimensions about the book is really kind of grappling and understanding or getting a, sen- a bit of an understanding of how profoundly influential events that happened in New York City in the 60s, that context, how profoundly influential and impactful it has been on the context of Palestine-Israel. I mean, it's really shocking and challenging to our thinking that is so uh, beholden still to kind of methodological nationalism that somehow discursivity of hate ends within the geopolitical boundaries of the nation state. So I really uh, conceptually and otherwise in terms of my commitment to the context of Palestine-Israel, I really want to express my thanks for how the book is helping me think through those dimensions. Well, thank you, everyone, for participating, uh, for writing reflections about Shaul Magid's book and for engaging in this conversation, and w- which is very meaningful conversation and unfortunately uh, timely. So thank you.
5: Thank
0: you. You've been listening to The Crockcast. Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Kroc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.
5: Thanks for listening.